Welcome to ABC at Noon. This is Paul Schreiner with Larry Boss. Larry, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty good, Paul. Pretty good. In this municipal election season, we are utilizing this show to uh, put the spotlight on the political candidates who are running for our city offices. In the course of uh, this period prior to the November election, we'll be talking to city council members, to the mayor's mayoral candidates, and the city clerk treasurer candidates. All have been invited, regardless of party. And today, we have... I'm going to let... I'm going to let... Larry introduce our candidate for the day and pose the first question. Larry? Okay, uh, I want to point out we've already done eight interviews with candidates and so we still have a, a lot to go here. There are 19 candidates 19 in all. candidates total, okay. And I want to point out one thing too. This plays originally on September the 9th and it will play again then uh, at noon obviously and then at 5 o'clock on the 10th on Sunday the 15th at 5 o'clock, and then on the Tuesday the 17th at 5 o'clock again. So this, is, this show will play four times in the next week. We think it is important that every candidate have the opportunity to express himself on specific issues, not just kind of wave the flag, but be specific about what they stand for to the extent that that's possible. And we are planning maybe to have a marathon a couple days before the election in which we replay all of these programs to give you a last uh, last look at these candidates. Well, Larry? first candidate today then is Drew Wegner, uh, mm-hmm. who's running for uh, the city council in District... In District 3. And okay. just a quick uh, quick rebuff, it is Drew Wenger. It's a very common mispronunciation. Wagner, a lot of people put the G in front of the N in my name. So, Wagner. Wagner. It's like like hanging. I thought I said it right because you know, because I wrote it. No problem. No problem at all. We've gone through this before. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I corrected you the last time. That's why I wrote it down here. I still couldn't get it right. Okay. Um, First question for you then is um, give you an opportunity here to talk about yourself, uh, why you're running, and essentially what issues you're passionate about in this election. Absolutely. Well, thank you for having me again. I appreciate the time and I appreciate uh, WVLP reaching out to all the candidates. I think that is an incredibly fair thing to do. I think that it is important for our community to hear the different candidates' messages so my name is Drew Wenger. I am running for the third city council district, which is on the west end of town. It essentially runs to the subdivision that is north of uh, Valparaiso High School, runs down Campbell. I have Northview. I have uh, Forest Park, Jesse Pfeiffer, which is my no- uh, my home hood. I have Manchester Meadows along Harrison. I have uh, let's see, Shamrock, and I also have the Sierra Nevada neighborhood off of Hayes Leonard. So um, I am 29 years old. I am a certified residential appraiser, and I came into the scene about two, uh, three years ago now. I have to count up the years. And I uh, was gifted this group, which was at the time the Center Township Com- uh, Democratic Committee or something along those lines. And we rebranded it to make it more, more new, more fresh. And uh, we rebranded it as the Valparaiso Democratic Committee. And after the, especially after the 2016 election, there was a, a lot of community grievance and willingness to go out there to get themselves involved into political life. So we really capitalized on that moment. 
And so I've been running that as the chair for the last three years. We've done an excellent job of filling up precinct committee person roles, which are just basically block captains for their neighborhood. We have also um, brought in a lot of newer people, and we have made some inroads to getting newer faces elected to office. And with that, I decided for this year that I wanted to run as my own person, run as a new generation, hopefully of leaders in the city of Alparaiso, mm-hmm. and communicate a, a message of, at the same time, fiscal conservatism um, and more old school thinking in the lines of what a city should be doing uh, in relation to giving money to uh, private enterprises. I also wanted to open up the system at large too, because there are a lot of offices within and departments within the city of Valparaiso's governments where there is virtually no citizen input whatsoever. And I believe that we need to change that as we continue to grow and thrive as a a burgeoning middle-class city here in the the beautiful crown jewel of Porter County in Northwest Indiana. And we've experienced a lot of growth within the last decade or so. And it makes sense because we have something very unique here in Valparaiso and we have strong schools. We have great infrastructure, which does need to be improved upon. We have some amazing small businesses, which have really allowed a a very unique culture to um, take people's imagination, um, take people's imagination hold in a downtown area and outside of the area. And um, so my goal is to basically protect what we have here, the, the great amenities that we have fought very long to uh, create in Valparaiso and continue them on for a long period of time, hopefully generations to come, while at the same time taking a more holistic approach and including many different voices and uh, many different ideas where we can hopefully forge a new and bold future. Thanks, Drew. Um, I'm going to get specific. Okay. If you look at the most recent census data, uh, 48% of all renters in Valparaiso mm-hmm. are what's known as housing burdened. Mm-hmm. That is, they pay more than 30% of their income for housing. Mm-hmm. If you look at people whose household income is $35,000 or less, right. fully 85% of those people are housing burdened. As a rule, the city... Uh, practices hands-off on at least that portion of the housing market. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you see a role in the city to impact the dilemma that I've just outlined? And do you have any specific recommendations as to how the city could engage in that? Absolutely. So actually we spoke on this at length, I believe just uh, the topic of affordable housing the last time I was on here for an hour. So I'll try to keep this short for this 30 minutes. But as I said, I work as a certified residential appraiser. So I have a pretty good, um, good, pretty good understanding and knowledge of the, the market within Valparaiso and Northwest Indiana at large. And it's, it boggles my mind because at the same time, while we have many of our residents who are housing burdened, we are not creating the essential new housing for many different income levels. It seems that uh, the tools of city governments have been totally tooled to creating expensive or what they call quality build condominiums or um, 
bigger, larger tracts, residential subdivisions that's for the most, by and large, they are totally unaffordable for most of the residents in Valparaiso. And I had a heck of a time trying to find a place to live in Valparaiso, my hometown where I've lived for 29 years. And I know that it is a huge burden for many young families, uh, young entrepreneurs who want to move into an area that does have low taxes, that has so many great amenities. So it has really been a sad sight to see the city government uh, continue on this role as almost uh, an artificial price inducer for home values within the city. And I believe that the city can do a lot of things differently to combat this. Number one is to stop giving taxpayer subsidies in the form of tax abatements for the first five to 10 years for newer subdivisions and developments, because these... If we're supposed to be incentivizing people to come into and move into Valparaiso, it seems absurd to me that we are incentivizing only a specific subsect of those income levels, a very small subsect at that. And um, the city has engaged in this practice, and we have pointed this out over the years many, many times. And they continue to say that's market rent housing, which is just ludicrous because it is actually not, since we're subsidizing it. It is an incentivized housing project, except it's only designed for the wealthiest of the wealthy to move into Valparaiso. And I think that is just a travesty because if you look at the data, like you were just saying, Paul, a lot of the residents are very financially burdened by their housing costs, their mortgage costs, and you know, in, every, in the in a more holistic sense, the cost of everything else that continue to rise and our wages that continue to stagnate. So uh, yeah, we, we can do a lot to really combat that, and um, I can get into some more specifics about that, but if, uh, if- Just in a word or two, you've said what we should stop, stop doing. doing. What should we start doing? We should continue to, um, we should incentivize in the same way that we have do, uh, been with expensive housing. We should incentivize housing, uh, let's say the stock between about 130 to $210 or $230,000, because that does seem to be what most families would be able to afford. I would. Um, I would guess about 85% of the families within Valparaiso would be easily uh, be able to easily afford something within that price range. Um, but at the same time, we need to relax our zoning district uh, requirements as well. Zoning is a huge issue in the housing markets, and a lot of people don't realize this because it essentially segments different parts of the city by income levels. And I think that we need to see more mixed use districts in the city and uh, the the allowance of more variances within our zoning districts as well. Larry. Okay, you, you sort of have started to answer my next question already because I was going to ask about tips and abatements. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Let me see if, if we can refine this a little bit by saying, do you have any kind of a formula that you would use in terms of determining who would get an abatement and who would get a tip? Is there some kind of formula or is it, is, it, is it a evaluation on each individual case? It is an, it's an individual evaluation. I would say that I'd be incredibly skeptical if we are giving tax abatements, repeat tax abatements or uh, taxpayer benefits to the same people over or developers over and over again. I think that needs to end uh, because I think that there are a lot of people hurting within Valparaiso and a lot of businesses hurting that could essentially use the same benefits, but we have been um, 
this is one of the problems with small town politics too. It's the fact that it's incredibly easy for money to influence, and it's also very easy for the politically connected developers to stay in touch with the elected officials and get preferential treatments. And that is just not my way. I am a a man that likes to um, try to incentivize people's lives so that it is generally easier for them to live in Valparaiso. And we need to look at the income levels that are below about $100,000 a year, especially around here where the medium uh, household income level is only about $52,000. But it would be a case-by-case basis because I, I'm always willing to hear people out, but we do have to be a little bit more stringent with the way that we are giving away tax abatements and creating new TIF districts within Valparaiso. Okay. The ABC document, the Agenda for a Better Community, which, yeah. by the way, anybody can access if they go to abcvalpo.org. One of the key issues, in fact, the first one on it, is the issue of Valparaiso as a welcoming community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As diversity increases in Valparaiso, there is some evidence that we may not be a welcoming community for everybody. Mm-hmm. So my, my, this is a two-part question. Are we a welcoming community for everybody? Is there evidence contrary to that? Or is there, I mean, can you make a blanket statement that we're, we're there? And if not, is there anything city leadership can do to make the place a more comfortable place for people who uh, aren't old-time Valpo types? Yeah, so it's... It's hard to make a generalized statement of whether or not we are a welcoming community or not. But I think that Valparaiso, we've done an excellent job of talking the talk. Whether or not we actually walk the walk is a different story. I think that we've promoted ourselves as a diverse and inclusive community, but it is simply not the case. And it, you can just look at the the general oversight functions of our government where we're not really even allowing everyday citizens to share their voice um, be heard and I, I think that you know there was an incident I think it was last year about Christmas time yeah it had to be Christmas time because it was when uh, right outside of Valparaiso's Walmart we had a bunch of Hell's Angels ringing door uh, ringing the bells for the Salvation Army buckets right outside and just the response from the community, was, it, it was a little bit boggling to me because everybody seemed to be totally fine with this rough, thug, basically criminal element sitting outside of Valparaiso's Walmart um, because they were doing charity work. And to me, what they were actually trying to do was legitimize their ideology, le- legitimize, especially in this town, which has had a very say a tumultuous history with race relations and with uh, the relations between different income classes. And I, I think that there is a lot more that's the, maybe, maybe not officially, maybe there's not something officially that we could do, but at the same time, our elected officials need to make sure that we are trying our damnedest to reach out to every single community that has felt like they have been forgotten or left behind or that they don't have a voice, whether that's the black, Latino community, the Asian community, the the poor white community, any community that has felt like they have just not had any elected official 
allow them their opportunity to share what their vision of Valparaiso looks like and what we can do to either compromise or exemplify the best elements of that. So I think that the, the elected officials can definitely use their position as more of a, a bully pulpit. We have been very lax in doing so in the past because their resolutions that the Valparaiso City Council passes are just toothless documents. They, they don't actually, they don't require or dictate anybody do anything, but they can be important to say what kind of community we are to both ourselves, the people that live here, sorry. <laughs> banging on the desk okay. like I was last Sometimes time. Sometimes you got to bang. <laughs> I, yeah. got, I got excited. Um, or the communities around us because we are trying to reach out to these younger people who want to live in a welcoming and diverse community where they can share their ideas openly with one another and they are not oppressed by either their uh, their own residents or their government. Okay, so, so you mentioned the bully pulpit, and I, I can see that as being a legitimate function mm -hmm. of our elected leaders. Mm -hmm. But the other one is that the elected leaders uh, either appoint or confirm appointments to uh, powerful boards, Absolutely. and those don't necessarily represent the diversity that is growing in our community. Would you... Would you note that as a member of the city council? I would absolutely note that. And I would also note that many of these committees have become um, powerless because they are created for almost the sole function of saying that we're doing something when they don't actually necessarily accomplish more than just the preliminary, which to me is just the dialogue. And an example, and this is something that I want to work on too, in Valparaiso is our accessibility, especially downtown, is pretty pretty horrid. Um, I did the wheelchair challenge and there was just not many businesses that I could actually get to easily and uh, be a patron of in the downtown area. And we have a disability committee that is appointed by, I believe the mayor appoints in most, if not all of the appointees for that board. And they are exemplary people within the community. They're people that come from opportunity enterprises. They come from um, different nonprofits within the city. And I think that we need to make sure that we are cracking the whip to to accomplish something to either create events that raise awareness for these district groups or um, to work with the city to accomplish goals such as making accessibility a priority. Larry. Um, you, again, you've already touched on this. I'm going to give you a chance to expand upon a little right. bit, but there's been much criticism about the lack of transparency and access to government mm -hmm. in the city. Do you see this as a problem? And if so, what would you propose to do about it? I see it as a problem of the structure as a whole, but I also see it as a, a problem of the citizen body, too, in the sense that we are both culpable to a certain extent. The, the truth is basically that small city governments run on the, most of them run on the idea that it needs to be a very hierarchical structure with a strong leader at the top that is making the decisions for everybody. And what that does is it allows things to actually get done at the city level, but it also excludes voices. And at the same time, one of my main goals of me running is to get people that normally would not be involved in politics involved 
so that they can empower themselves. And we have a real problem in America right now, or it seems the democratic spirit, the our our birthrights, the the grand bold experiment of democracy in this country is something that the world had never seen before, at least on this scale. We have allowed that legacy to kind of fall by the wayside, and we need to re-empower us ourselves and and hear our own voices. Make sure that we are going out and raising concerns for ourselves, for our neighbors, our families, and friends that matter, and making sure at the same time that our elected officials that we do put in power, all these representatives, are accomplishing what they set out to do, what they promised to do in the beginning. You know, I I was going to go into a different direction, uh, but I want to kind of amplify a little bit of what you said. You know, we don't have a, a, a local media voice other than this tiny little radio station. Problem around the, the local Times newspaper carries very little mm-hmm. city news. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah, certainly. I don't. I don't listen to the country station, so mm-hmm. I don't know if they carry it. How do we fix that? How do you, you want everybody to get more involved mm-hmm. in the issues? Yeah, but it's not in front of us. No, it's not in front of us. Maybe and there's not an answer to that. But there's, it's, it's a wide-ranging answer. There's many things that we can do to reach out to people. And one thing is that, like, uh, when I moved into my... It's just something I was thinking about recently. And one thing that I was thinking about is that when I moved in, there is a woman that shows up from the Valpo Chambers for newer residents within the city. And she is supposed to be the, the welcoming person for these new transplants. And I was a new transplant, so I was kind of off-put by the whole thing in the first place. Um, but she ended up just giving me coupons of businesses. And I think that that is a waste of time and energy. I think that there are... There are attributes of our city governments that need to be known to people and whether that is having a liaison. And we now have a community engagement uh, director, Maggie Clifton, who I, I think her job could be more refined to solely reaching out to various communities, neighborhood associations, et cetera, and bring them into the fold. And um, so that's one thing. We need to revamp our website at the same time because it's just an, an absolute behemoth to wield, and especially for older folk who are not pervy to the technology like we are Are you today. attacking Larry? I'm not attacking Larry. I'm just saying that there is a learning curve, and a lot of people just, they, they reach, they, they have a different... Um, they have their ears to the ground in different areas. And for different generations, there are different media outlets that we could utilize, especially social media, um, that I, I think we could reach out to different subsects of people. And um, then for the older generation, we can use newsletters and reach out to nonprofits within the na- uh, within the neighborhoods. And uh, But that's just the preliminary. That's just the basis of what we could start to do. Next question seems like a logical extension of what you're talking about, and that is that uh, a lot of time and energy was invested in Velpo Next Vision Plan, Mm -hmm. okay, Mm -hmm. Um, as well as the the conclusions from the altogether uh, Velpo effort. Um, Both of these things produced a long list of um, items that citizens of Valparaiso wanted. Where do you see these proposals fitting into uh, your administration? So I very much approved of the Valpo next plan. I, uh, to be honest, I wasn't involved very integrally at, at all, honestly, when the document was first created, but the history and prestige of it and the, the goal of becoming the most civically minded or civically engaged city 
it obviously resonates very heavily with me because that's what I want. I want people to be involved and Volpo Next seemed to be a good nexus for that. But at the same time right now, um, you know, in the past, and this is not to be critical of Valpo Next because I think that they are doing a fantastic job. They are just up against a system that is not very beneficial to accomplishing what they wanted to um, at the offsets. But in the past year, it's kind of puttered out in the sense of having meetings, general um, meetings, because they had they have very uh, a, f- a few community or sorry a few committees that branch out from Valpo Next, and they were holding meetings every month for these various committees, and then they consolidated those to just once a month meetings, and now it's just once um, every so often meetings for just a generalized meeting, and so I, I think that. Valpo Next is running into this problem, that the city governments kind of, like I said, they create these tools to be used, but then they never actually pick them up and wield them. They are therefore a superficial gleaning to say that we are doing something. But what are we actually accomplishing? And I believe that it's great that Valpo Next has gotten so many different people together in the same room to discuss various ideas, but at the same time, they could obviously do more, and their grants from the city council are now dwindling out. I believe that this will be their last year where they actually get funding from the city, so it's going to become a totally non-profit entity from this point on where they have to rely on individual donations, and I think that's a shame. I really do think that Valponex and the HRC and many of these committees and commissions that have been created are essential and could be supported more by the city council. I would do that as a push for that as a city councilman. Drew, as we speak right now, our nation is experiencing a hurricane on the East Coast, Mm -hmm. and there are those who argue that the frequency and the intensity of those hurricanes is increasing, are increasing because of this whole climate issue. So that begs the question of sustainability. Mm -hmm. Is there a role in city government in terms of guiding the future of the city in terms of energy use, sustainability in general? And is that something that you believe should be addressed by the city administration? Yes, I do. Yeah. And I don't think that it is maybe for a very small group of people, climate change and the at least the threats of the rapidly increasing um extreme weather conditions and increase in heat has become very apparent. And if you even talk to many of the people who work as farmers in rural communities, they they know that I, I think I just heard um, an NPR segment that in Oregon, their harvesting months are now a month past what they used to be. So things are rapidly changing and we have to adapt. And at the same time, you have to ask ourselves what we can actually do as individuals and as communities to do this. So as individuals, we need to make sure that we are dedicated to things like recycling. We are dedicated to uh, lowering our individual carbon footprint. But as cities, we can be a model not only for the state, but for the larger nation at whole. Um, And what we can start to implement is I believe it would be fundamentally uh, a necessity in the future is we could convert our city 
basically the, the, the city buildings to allow for solar panels to be included on their uh, on public property. And I also think that we need to incentivize in some fashion, I'm not sure of which fashion though, just right now, but I know that we do need to start including green technology into our own private residences as well, because I think that decentralization from natural gas and oil is an absolute necessity. Larry. Well, I think that um, I want to thank Drew for uh, coming here. And we've got a couple minutes left, about a minute left. We'll give you one. We'll give you the last minute, Drew. Anything you want to say? <sighs> well, this election is going to prove to be a, a sea change from what's we've had because we have a 16 term or 16 yeah 16 year term mayor uh, that is stepping down we have a a mishmash of people that are vying for these city council seats and to be frank many of us are incredibly qualified and we are dedicated and passionate and some people are in this just to continue on a, a legacy without actually identifying or exemplifying a vision of their own and what I would like to see is I would like to challenge our opponents to actually put forth a, a plan for the city that is not just that we will continue on what John Casas has done or that we will just make sure that we are going down the same path. We, are, we have so many different um, challenges that we are going to be faced with that we need to fo focus on a new leadership and uh, new ideas. So thank you very much. Thank you, Drew Winger. Larry? Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. Stay tuned. Welcome back to ABC at Noon. I want to thank, thank Drew again for Weng, Weg, Wenger. Okay, good job uh, for talking to us uh, uh, about his things. We now turn to uh, Robert Cotton, uh, Robert, an incumbent, an incumbent. Yeah, one of the few incumbents running uh, for city council seat. Welcome, Robert. Yes, thank you. Okay. Well, our glad, first, glad to be here. Okay. Our first question is basically to allow you to talk about, um, to explain to the audience about who you are, okay, and, and why you're running and what issues you're passionate about. Well, who I am. Well, you know, that's the funny thing about that. And let me just say this in, with humor and we'll kind of break the ice that way. Uh, sometimes I'll I'll be in a, well, I mean, oftentimes I'm in meetings and or sessions, um, and it, this is just not local to Valparaiso, but over the course of my career, where uh, being the only uh, minority in the, in the room, um, you know, I often uh, ask, um, you know, who am I and what am I doing here? I mean, it's sort of a funny thing that I, I've been recently analogizing uh, General Poindexter, whoever that guy was that ran with uh, Ross Perot, yeah. when he kind of asked who he was. And there are some times where 
where sometimes when I, again I I sit back and I think in terms how unique my candidacy is or has been in the context of the city council, and I'd say, uh, well, I'm the guy that um, that my detractors say is hard to work with. Um, and uh, a lot of times uh, that uh, translates for, to me as being uh, that maybe I'm the one guy on the city council who doesn't just go along to get along. Uh, I'm a person who believes in the uh, role of service in the public square as a city councilman to be similar to the overarching principles of our governance uh, that extend through every branch of government uh, where you have a separation of power. Uh, co-equal branches of government designed to be representative voices of the people and as well fiscal. So I am that person who uh, over 50 years of uh, residency in Valparaiso, um, you know, finally maybe four years ago, decided it was time to uh, to give uh, the the election process a, a try, uh, to give my uh, wonderful constituents and friends in Valparaiso an opportunity to uh, to to vote for me. So, uh, as a 50 year resident uh, who's raised uh, three children and a couple nieces, um, and uh, a long time Valpo resident, uh, probably the longest uh, resident running for city council, um, you know, I'm a person who. Um, you know, has uh, a great deal of uh, belief in uh, in, uh, in Valparaiso's future. Uh, and this is a belief that started as early as my uh, first becoming aware of this city for the promise uh, that it, uh, it, it, it held for, for my family. So that's a long way around a very simple question. Uh, but I am Robert Cotton. I'm a uh, incumbent uh, city councilman for the second district uh, and uh, looking for an opportunity to have the voters uh, affirm that they appreciate uh, my promise uh, of being able to make their voice count. Second part of the question um, was, uh, well, you kind of answered the second part, which is why you're running. But the third part was, what issues are you most passionate about? The same issues that I started with, um, uh, and maybe to some extent more refined. Um, I like to uh, acronym this out as uh, PATI. I'm running to put PATI in the government. Locally, we need more PATI. What is PATI? PATI is P for process. Uh, that's uh, how we get things done. And there are several subsections of the process that I do believe um, are necessary to, to be dealt with. I think uh, Patty, uh, Patty is, uh, uh, in, in a way, uh, a contributing uh, necessity uh, to any city that, or any organization that wants to have uh, good governance. Uh, P for process, A for accessibility, um, not only how do we get things done, by what processes do we follow, but also who is government accessible to? Who has the ear of the elected officials? Is it the, is it the people, your constituents, or, or is it 10 guys behind the scene who call themselves the power structure? Um, anyway, uh, accessibility. Our government has to be accessibility in order to provide good governance. Transparency. 
Oh, snap. There's a big one. Transparency. Everybody talks about transparency these days, but it was the cornerstone of the first platform that I ran on. And quite frankly, uh, I have as big a concern about transparency as I did then, but not in a way that it has become almost cliche. It's almost become cliche for people to say that they're for transparency, uh, when in fact I think that uh, uh, the, the, the necessity of uh, transparency uh, in, in many subsections, sub, subtopic ways that I can talk about, but um, you have to kind of uh, look at the, the engagement factor um, and, and, and understand that when you have transparency in more than name only, you are working towards a culture, a culture that extends government to the people in such a way as we uh, understand it and, uh, and help people buy into it better. Uh, you know, I think that uh, as a byproduct of there being a lack of transparency across all of our departments, uh, not just what we spend in our checkbook, but uh, how much input do we take and how effectively do we do that? Uh, how efficient do we run as a government? Uh, when we make uh, abatements uh, or allocate funds, uh, who are the underlying recipients of those, of those dollars? Could that actually be an elected official? or a cozy insider on a number of successive occasions? Could it be uh, something that uh, if in fact we had a better amount of visibility on, would there be better process in, in, in involved? Let me suggest that these things are, are very symbiotic and they interrelate. Uh, so it's kind of a compound uh, uh, you know, formula for good governance. So transparency, uh, is, uh, well, you know, I want to anecdotally talk about the fact that I, as I made that promise for transparency, one of the first things I did is I fought for uh, a greater amount of scrutiny, a greater amount of, um, of um, council diligence uh, in being the oversight body over those things that we authorize. If we authorize money to go one place or another, we should also be the compliance arm as opposed to passing that off to the very branch of government who has sold us on our vote, meaning they come to us to get the vote, so they're making, a, in essence, what I call a sales pitch. We generally fall for the sales pitch, and, uh, and then at the same time that we authorize that, we give up our responsibility in a, in a very ill-advised way to be the compliance officer and fulfill our role as a fiduciary officers. But nevertheless, I mean, I get in the weeds there. I, I did ask for within the first two months of my a first term, a transparency portal, a transparency committee, and it was fought uh, with vigor uh, by every single city councilman. In fact, um, I was uh, at that point in my uh, political career feeling as though I needed to quit. I, I got beat up for about 40 minutes um, with a lot of defensiveness about, well, we're, we're transparent. What are you trying to say? All the things that people generally say when they don't understand the true nature of what a culture of transparency is. Hey, Bob, briefly, what's I stand for? And, uh, and again, so what I say is at that point when I felt really down, I got a letter, a handwritten card in the mail from the then state auditor, Suzanne Crouch. Suzanne Crouch uh, thanked me for standing up uh, on behalf of taxpayer interest with respect to how government uh, interacts with people's, with the taxpayer's money 
uh, in effectuating good government. So again, I'm 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 as bold. Uh, on transparency, uh, feeling as though we still have a long way to go to establish a culture of transparency. So that's P-A-T so far, Paul. Are you with me? That's Pat. I'm and, eager to hear what I is. And I is inclusion. Inclusion uh, has to do with, um, you know, when we hear this expression, this expression that says, we are Valpo, um, you know, I, I, I kind of get this little hair on my back up because it kind of reminds me of that MAGA type statement and not because it's bad because I feel like I'm Valpo when I hear it I'm when I say I say it I want my constituents to say it but I also want my constituents to feel it and when I did run I didn't feel like it was the city where everybody felt included equally and I'd like to help facilitate to the best we can to make Valpo's expression, that cheerleader's expression, we are Valpo, I'd like for everybody to be able to feel that, uh, that same sense of pride of place. Larry? Well, uh, let, me follow up on, let me follow up on that uh, uh, and say, how, how, do you, how do you go about facilitating inclusiveness? How do you go about feeling, give, giving people that sense that they belong in this particular community? Is there a formula for that, or is it just a... Uh, work in progress. Well, no, there's no, there's nothing that comes in a bottle. There's no elixir, you know, that does any one of these things. But certainly, having a world view, a world view that understands and values that um, bigger than themselves. Uh, it, it's that, I mean, we've got smaller communities within our burger community that certainly do understand it. And you, you, you've uh, as um, as an entity, um, I think Mr. Schreiner in particular. I've often talked about, um, you know, there's being a, a people who uh, who can be around here forever. It doesn't have just it doesn't have to be just new people. I hear it all the time from white folks who've been here forever that they really don't feel like a part of the fabric. They don't feel included. I think there's a certain culture um, that ev- evolves when there's a critical mass of people in elected office and in places of leadership who do understand that worldview. And will help uh, that become things that we, uh, as best we are able, uh, you know, uh, try to build into uh, build into the, the the consciousness of 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 what we get done. Like for instance, our previous trustee, um, he was only open for four or five hours a day, um, and not to just put it on the trustee's office, but you know, there uh, and uh, he ran it in a really part time. Uh, on a part-time basis and really wasn't much concerned with a vast portion of what that traditional uh, constituency or charge is from that office. Um, An inclusive now disposition or worldview is what serves there now, uh, who I think has demonstrated in a very short period of time what it means to have an inclusive disposition as an elected official. Um, So it's, it's not so tangible as I can sit here and say that there's a formulatic for that. I think it has to do with a conscientious disposition about wanting to and desiring uh, to have a, a more inclusive city. I'm sorry. Yeah. It's a culture change you're talking about. I think really? so indeed. Yeah. 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 And, and it's promoted by a sufficient number of people who are, have, have a dynamic worldview uh, that is that can think beyond themselves and, and their own sort of group thinkish attitude about if I like it and it's great for me, uh, well, hey, how about our schools? You know, you're getting something, but necessarily not so much concerned about 
a real sense of ownership. And that, that's so important. We'll get so much more out of so many more people when they feel a sense of ownership. And that's what happens when you feel included. There's been a great deal of praise for the CASA administration in terms of economic development, particularly in terms of the restaurants downtown and Central Park Plaza. But there is evidence that certain groups of people have been left behind. If you look at the statistics, in 1980, 6% of Valparaiso residents were living in poverty. That number now is almost 15%. We have a clear condition of income disparity, not just in Valparaiso. Certainly in the United States, that's a growing trend. Is there a role for city government in trying to equalize things out, even though you guys can't pass income tax, or at least not like the feds can? Is there any role to address the issue for folks who are working for minimum wage, for folks who are kind of stuck in that bottom 20% of the income? You know, to be quite honest, um, there there really isn't, as an elected official, that, that, that would fall somewhat outside of uh, the scope of what my, my charge is as a, a city councilman. You know, I'm the fiscal officer in the city. And, um, and uh, you know, so I think in the context of cities also having limited amounts of tools uh, to work with, uh, one of them being our economic development engine, which again, that's an, a whole nother conversation, um, and particularly related to the complexities that emerge because of its very success. Um, but I'm going to stay on point here and say that, um, you know, we have a structure uh, that we are bound by, and that one is really rather from the white, right, <laughs> the right wing uh, uh, sort of a disposition of uh, market. Uh, you know, non-interference with the market for the most part. Um, and, um, and our market is really what's kind of dictating what types of businesses and what types of uh, a- a- economy we have. Um, in, in 1980, uh, our famous uh, The Gipper, uh, Ronnie Reagan, he, he, he touted that we would be uh, ushering in millions and gazillions of jobs and they would be a service economy. And uh, manufacturing was passe in America. And it always appeared, sounded queer to me that you can't be an economy that's, that's thriving uh, when you're basically a consumer uh, co- economy, not making anything, but only you know consuming. But the service orientation of our economy has been such that that's probably one of the biggest and single most uh, uh, important contributing factors into what types of jobs are out there in America. Um, so short of bringing those manufacturing jobs back, I don't think there's really much you can do um, <coughs> about the, the type of jobs. What we would have to do is see what the dynamic impact of this is. And that's the dynamic uh, impact of saying, well, we're building this, but what impact does it have on the in city in its entirety? We know that it's attracting people from Chicago and $500,000 houses and the gated upscale stuff. But how is the old Valpo, the senior citizens, the teachers, the professors, the, the young families, the retired people on Social Security, how is this economy affecting them? And we have to figure out how to use our tools in such a way as we already have acknowledged we will use them for the high-end stuff and or to facilitate roads and sewers and 
building infrastructure in the places that uh, are really kind of unattainable. So forever it's worth, I think that we have limited amounts of, uh, of local power to do that. We, we do need a worldview. Again, we talk about the worldview. I, I need some help, guys. <laughs> we need a worldview um, within our government structure that will pivot to some extent in, into a, a more of a balanced profile with respect to what we acknowledge on one side we need and not try to use a similar amount of power with our limited tools to try to incentivize development of, um, of, of the types of uh, pro- projects or uh, development that will, uh, will ease the burden of this stratification. So and that's a complicated answer. Please don't let me get too thick in the weeds with my answers, guys. But uh, you know, I tried cutting you off once. I'm not doing it again. <laughs> Larry. Um, tied into all these things is the problem of, of, of housing. Paul talks about people being left behind. Uh, certainly the data suggests very clearly that half, almost half of the renters are, in this community are living in unaffordable housing or are housing burdened because they're paying more than 30% of their income for rent. Is the city have any responsibility for that? And if they do, what can they do about it? Well, you know, give you a chance to go back to the economics. Then. And this, yeah. frankly, is a corollary. If you can't get wages up, can you find more affordable housing? Because it is a central cost. That's that's what I was saying. You you listen to me, Paul. Wow, we're making progress. Excuse me. Let me say that. Yeah, that's that's the side that we have some ability to to, but we have to have a worldview that acknowledges it. One of the things I think has been a trap is that before my time, um, somebody had the ill-informed um, wisdom or lack thereof to bring in section 43 housing they call it and there's such a large volume of these really not very not very pleasant uh, structures that concentrate huge swaths of, of low-income poor folks um, in, into certain zip codes within Valpo and um, and that is an inhibitor uh, when people talk about the need for more affordable housing. And there's also a lot of old housing stock that isn't being upgraded to the point where it's attractive for two-income teachers or uh, you know, professors or something like that as well. But the point is, is that we have to, um, yeah, we have, to have uh, uh, a, a disposition that will incentive um, development in mixed-income housing um, and, and understand that we shouldn't expect the developer to take a hit. We, I, we can't impose onto someone to make less money when, in fact, the land cost, everything uh, associated with our rising assessed values. And that's a part and parcel with the fact that everybody, even in this room, probably enjoy 1% property tax caps on your residential, don't you? We all do. But that is in a, in a countervailing force or a way to make city who still has to pay the police, who still has to pay the fire, who still has to fix the streets, who still has to run a government. You know, we have property tax caps that cut a big chunk of what we budget away from us. So we have to have rising assessed value to, to have a 1% property tax rate give us more money so that we can take care of your essential services. My point is that we can't also expect a developer to take a hit because we need affordable housing. If his highest and best use for that land is something that he's being asked to compromise, that's wrong. We should figure out a way as we did with St. Paul Square, as we did with Valeview, as we do with any other of the upscale projects that we engage in, a way to make at least 
uh, it, it easier and more effective for a developer to uh, to engage in, in markets where, where for mixed income housing. And we should stop being afraid of Section 8 units so that at least one or two out of 20 units it, it, within our beautiful people enclaves, I call that, that's my own term, the enclaves with the beautiful people, you know, might have an opportunity to have government higher than us subsidizing one or two units so that we don't become so gated, in fact, without even needing gates in Valparaiso. So, so once again, the worldview is important. It's essential. But I want to get to a real specific thing. Uh, for a long time, there have been segments of the not-for-profit community that has advocated to uh, provide counsel to the city government regarding the issue of affordable housing. Would you favor creating a advisory body of pe- folks with expertise who have been in the f- been in the field? What well, kind of play a role similar to the Human uh, Human Relations Council with regards to the issue of housing for all? Yeah. Well, I think there's wisdom in that. And as we go to consultants um, for everything under the sun, however, we don't go to consultants for those things that we'd really rather not deal with. And that's governed by a person's worldview. Um, so if we want to get something done that with respect to uh, a pet project of our own, um, we will, we will uh, embrace and, 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 and seek um, uh, the input from experts. Uh, so in, in a way that's not dissimilar from any consultancy, and you know, we're famous for consulting reports here, right? Um, I would certainly say that that would be an, an, a, a wonderful uh, idea. Uh, and I'm surprised, quite frankly, for as prominent a role as those institutions play in our community, and for as much as we uh, defer a lot of the dirty work in that regard to them, that we aren't more engaged uh, uh, to, to look at ways that they can advise uh, the highest level of leadership on, um, on, on, on means to go forward. Sometimes it may be that this worldview simply doesn't want to hear what you've got to say. And they know what you're going to say. I think you've wrapped that up in a pretty tight package. Larry. Um, One way or the other, we are going to have a major change in the government uh, come November. And let's run the scenario out. Let's say the Democrats do get control of the city council and control of the mayor's office. What, What changes do you think would come about as a result of that? That's assuming you were part of the... the, uh, yeah, assuming I was, and I'm let, yeah. I'm willing to let the chips fall where they may. I mean, like I say, I um, I'm not a person who, um, I mean, I think there's a line that anybody uh, has to deal with, and that is a line of consciousness as it relates to um, being who you said you would be and who you represent. So, uh, whether it be me or someone else, well, of course, let me say this: <laughs> it, it, if you want to keep things moving forward in such a way. Um, as you are informed and you are deferred to as my constituent, whether you live in my district or not, um, you know, you certainly want a person like me uh, to remain on that city council. But I do view um, the, uh, the Democratic slate, and I would, you know, I think that even if, in fact, every Democrat won, can I dream? Every, yeah. If every Democrat won, that, that was the question. You, would, you would have a, a fundamentally different uh, dynamic than what compelled me to run for office to begin with. And that was the seeming 
I won't say rubber stamp because rubber stamp doesn't sound right. But nevertheless, I, I wouldn't. We would not be a city council who defers or abrogates our responsibility as a co-equal branch. We have a multi-generational platform with people from all ends of the spectrum who believe in debate, who believe in open and transparent government, who don't agree on all the issues. In fact, I, I bump heads with people. <laughs> I probably disagree with people as much Everybody. as I do this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, come on, you know me. So I'm, I'm going to speak my truth, and, and I'm going to go out and shake your hand gladly for the most vigorous debate you can give me. I, that's good. That's good in government. But the point is that the dynamic which would be such that if we were all elected, uh, I think Valparaiso would really have an opportunity to move forward in a way that we had been not accustomed to, uh, whereas the accountability now through that transparency, the transparency bringing about accountability would be to the constituents as opposed to the power structure. <laughs> I say that with the force uh, that it was presented to me that we have a power structure. Uh, and uh, again, I say that the, the real power is the people, and that's what uh, would be the change in a, in the event that we had a democratic majority. Uh, if you have the, I call it the, ju well, I won't say the junior high league, the B team, whatever the case may be, but you've got a lot of the guys who have not ever served a day in office on the other side. A lot of them have persuasions that somewhat defy any credible rationale for running other than to be someone subordinate to another person who's really been um, not with the vision but rather he's picking up the water and trying to carry it in a manner that he presumes that the last 16 years path of success can be transposed onto the next 16 years in such a way as to say that um, we haven't acquired a level of, of a success that now requires a different level of thought, a different level of care, a different level of engagement bringing in more of the talented people who exist in, in abundance within this community as opposed to relying on a same narrow and circulating list of the same names uh, saying it's all because we have the best. I'm sorry. So, again, I say I, I'm thrilled by the Democratic slate. And, uh, in fact, I wish I had more time and I explained a little bit more about where the similarities are and where some of the differences are. But to say that we would be a council that would uh, uphold our civic and, and, and fiduciary uh, role uh, in a way that's fair and, and not considering ourselves or anybody behind the curtain, uh, but rather the well-being of the taxpayers, is what you would get. I hope I answered the question. Well, we're just about out of time. And uh, time, I want to thank... Uh, uh, Robert, for coming and, and talking to us. Robert Cotton is the one of the few. Those are two incumbents running. One of the two incumbents running, or three, is there? Whatever it is, uh, incumbents. And so, um, want to thank Robert and remind Paul. folks that they can listen to this show on Tuesday at five o'clock or Sunday at five o'clock, and we think even next Tuesday at 5 o'clock, and this is ABC at noon. Robert Cotton, you have a word. You have about 10 seconds. All right. When you elected me four years ago, you trusted me to demand more of our city government and to make sure that every voice counts. And by golly, I have. I'm asking you for your trust again. Please uh, consider my candidacy this year. Thank you, Robert Cotton. Thank you, Robert.